Greetings and welcome to the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. I'm Bierkegaard, of course. Today is the 17th, 2024. Going to get into Soren quickly today. I know last week I did a little bit more of a travelogue, which had its purpose in telling the story of me almost getting slammed by an SUV on an, on an e-bike down in Tampa and getting killed. Uh, 15 to 20 feet away from meeting God face to face. Uh, but I was spared for some reason. Uh, didn't want to think about it too much, but it's hard not to think about um, because uh, those those scrapes with, uh, with uh, eternity should uh, make us mindful of, the, of our life. And uh, it did for me. Initially, I was a little bit less... Uh, uh, thinking about it, but the more I thought about it, the more it had an effect on me, and uh, made me think about how uh, life is going and where I want life to be, in terms of what I think God wants me to do, and not to uh, take life for granted, just to have a great appreciation for uh, the goodness that God has given us uh, through Christ, and then all the other <clears throat> blessings that have come, because of his manifest goodness to us. Uh, God is good. It's not mean he's nice all the time in the traditional sense of giving us what we want and how we want it. Uh, God has other 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 goals uh, for us, the betterment of our souls, and that's what Soren is getting into uh, in this upbuilding discourse. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of review today because I think it's important to uh, restate some things. Uh, it's powerful stuff, and I'm going to go back. So if it sounds a little familiar, it is. Even a task we're lowly uh, to will to fulfill it with God uh, makes the purpose uh, greater than anything that arose in the natural man's heart. So we try to do things with God's spirit and God's purposes in us. Even if the task was lowly to will to fulfill it with God makes the purpose greater uh, than anything that arose in the natural man's heart. So even small things, when given to God, think of the widow's might in the temple treasury, that she gave more because she gave it all than the person that gave some when they had a lot more. <clears throat> and I guess it's hard to give some to God. I don't know what that looks like. Either give it to God or you don't. It is not distressed. Is it not distrust of life that patient teaches? We should distrust life. We shouldn't put too much faith in it in terms of outside of God. Not in distress that it discovers that the person never attains its goal in as much as it always attains its goal because the goal is God. So everything, all of our means should lead to the ends of God. And in this sense, patience teaches trust in life and probably uh, its purpose is poor in attire. Yes, it is. Patience doesn't look like a great thing. It's called a virtue, but even virtues really aren't considered that important these days. It's more important to uh, to be uh, passionate and to um, you know live life with a certain zest, I suppose. And that that can be outside of the realm of virtue. Uh, people that want to get things their own way, when they want it, how they want it. Uh, patience. Patience isn't one of those things. 
Uh, perseverance can be valued, but it's perseverance for things that we want. We should want better souls. We should want better souls. That should be our number one goal, to be more like, more like Christ. Is it not uh, distrust of life that patience teaches? Not in distrust that it discovers that the person purpose never attains its goal in as much as it always attains its goal because the goal is God. And in, the, in the, this sense, patience teaches tr trust in life. And this is life in God. And, eh, probably its purpose is poor in attire. But inwardly, it is glorious, faithful, and unswerving at all times. A patient person is a consistent person. It doesn't mean they don't have flexibility. It doesn't mean they can't you know, change their uh, direction if they need to. But patience is a calming, it's a calming spirit. And I've learned that recently in a physical realm with my injuries. I had the sports hernia number one. I had a busted elbow number two, as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast. And then I also hurt my, um, hurt my left wrist in helping my dad out in a situation of getting rid of his car, where he were getting his car junk down towards Philadelphia. And it was a rainy, sloppy day, and I had to go inside of his condo to use his bathroom because uh, the tow truck driver was late, uh, over two hours late. So we were waiting in my car, waiting for the tow truck driver to arrive, and I so I had to go into the of my dad's ba bathroom inside his condo. It's a series of doors that I have to open up. I have to go through the main entrance, et cetera, et cetera. And... Uh, I left the condo and closed the door and came back out and I see a bunch of things going on, a lot of chaos outside around my car and my dad's banging around on his walker and there's two people there that don't appear to be related to the situation that are involved and the tow truck operator's nowhere to be found but my dad had seen him gone by and I was kind of booking out there to see what was going on. I was a little concerned about the chaos and I slipped on the grass. I was wearing a wearing sandals uh, because I had busted my toe recently. I had a bad string of uh, injuries recently, but I had torn my toenail off in a fire pit accident, so I couldn't wear regular shoes. My foot was all hurting. My toe was all hurting. So anyway, I slipped uh, <clears throat> in the front yard of his condo, and I hurt my wrist, which I've broken twice before. So I've been rehabbing a lot of injuries, and one thing that I have gotten better at, I suppose, as I've gotten older, is rather than not allowing injuries to heal. Now, I healed quicker when I was younger, so that's that's true. That's a fact. There's things that I do now that when I was a kid, I would have bounced right back from. But now, if I go down, I'm usually hurt for a while, and it takes me a while to get back up and a while to rehab. So anyway, uh, my wrist got hurt. So I have a sports hernia. I have a busted right elbow. I have a strained left wrist. <laughs> you know, a real walking uh, casually, man. And I uh, just had to be patient. I couldn't force it too soon. It was very frustrating not to play disc golf for about three months or lift weights for three months and not to run for three months. But I know that I'm going to cause injury, further injury. <clears throat> I'm already injured. Further injury if I don't take a rest. So patience just tells us, listen, there's a time and there's a season and you just have to, you know, have to rehab to a point where, um, you know, it's not going to cause further injury for you to continuous activity so i got to play some disc golf down in um down at tampa with this eight other guys i just met them down there they're kind of a club an old man's club of playing disc golf and i played really well but my elbows finally 
well enough to be able to play disc golf again. So our souls uh, can also be injured in the world. We can uh, <clears throat> incur injury to our souls. And that's like virtues and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Where Jesus warns us not to uh, lose our souls in exchange for the world. And if we uh, somehow recalibrate our decisions, God's Spirit reaches us and we realize that we're on the wrong path. We've been injured by that path. We've been injured. We've been damaged by it. And um, we have to heal from it. We have to be still. We have to let patience do its work. In a sense, patience teaches trust in life and probably its purpose is poor and tired, but inwardly it's glorious, faithful, and unswerving at all times. So it was then that the young person went out into life. For, uh, fortunate the young person who did that. He went with the uh, help of patience, not rich in wishes, not ex intoxicated with uh, purpose, but in faith's covenant with the eternal, in hope's covenant with the future, in love's covenant with God and hum human beings. And patience blessed the covenant and promised uh, not to forsake him, even though he lost the wish and the youthful purpose, he still would not lose his soul. So we're not going to necessarily be successful in the way we thought we were going to be. Um, but he would not lose his soul, which is the greatest tragedy of all. The greatest tragedy of all is to lose one's soul. We've talked about that happens by degrees, usually. People compromise here. They compromise there. Chip away at their integrity. And then uh, soon there's just a pile of rubble. Uh, he would still not lose his soul. <clears throat> if a person did not believingly aspire to the eternal, is not hopefully tranquil about the future. And I love that term, hopefully tranquil about the future. It doesn't mean, again, we're going to get everything our way. Everything our way. <clears throat> we talked about, Jesus uh, talked about preserving one's soul in patience and the destruction of Jerusalem where the disciples and surrounding peoples, the Jews, would lose everything. And this is not just some abstract little story. Imagine living in Jerusalem during the um, circling by the Roman armies and, and feeling the noose tightening on the city and uh, feeling that God might bail you out, that God might uh, do like a Red Sea miracle of some type, some, some divine action, whereas it was very clear that God was going to let the city of Jerusalem suffer greatly for its sins. Um, I'm going to get into some hard theology there that I'm not going to get into, but Jesus says that's God's will, and you're to be patient in the midst of that. Um, it's not lovingly in peace. Let me just do this, uh, start over just a bit. If a person does not believingly aspire to the eternal, is not hopefully tranquil about the future, <laughs> future is not lovingly in peace and unity with God and human beings. Now, you're supposed to be at peace with um people as much as possible uh, Peter I think says that then he has lost his soul however lowly he is however small in stature however poor in talents whatever his soul is more specifically in itself and its differences from everyone else's his soul nevertheless is preserved in whatever he lost and whatever he was denied uh, this is some good stuff here in deliberation. He understood this with the help of patience. And without patience, he would not have understood it. That's a rule of um, approaching things is that we often have to stop and really look at stuff and really ponder things. Now, we don't want to get caught too much in deliberation and endless uh, 
endless churning, uh, but you want to fix something, it's best to really take account of what's going on and to really stare at it and really think about it and seek out wisdom from others and videos and whatnot and not just react, not just try to bully something back into place or something. To preserve one's soul patience, that is to keep the soul bound together in patience, though it does not go outside uh, go outside this and thereby uh, thereby become lost when he must begin the long battle with an infatigable enemy, time, and with multifarious, with uh, a multifarious enemy, the world. So time and the world. <clears throat> and I thought about time recently, you know, when I read these uh, discourses and I begin to think about what direction the uh, podcast is to go. <clears throat> One of the things I was doing this summer, and I was doing it a lot, was using my my fit watch my garmin uh, instinct which is like a fitbit and it ties into my phone it tracks my heart rate it tracks the distance that i've traveled run or whatever uh, i also use like a clock when i'm lifting weights to try to make sure i hit my 40 minute mark and i've kind of felt recently that the timing thing actually probably exacerbated my injuries because i felt under more pressure to keep pushing and keep improving now i wanted to get my fitness better because my cholesterol was so high and i figured if i could lose some weight and get my heart in better shape then uh, my higher my very dangerous cholesterol would begin to moderate and it did okay but i pushed it too hard and I was like wrestling time, like wrestling time out in these like three mile runs and then, uh, you know, trying to improve my time, time after time after time. And then when I'm lifting weights, I'm you know, like on the clock and I'm looking at the clock consistently try to try to lift. And I've been felt fairly convicted recently that that didn't help my injuries, that I was pushing a bit too hard too soon. And the time is a good metric, but it's, it's, it's can be oppressive and, uh, I don't know, we have to like frame things with time in mind and use some benchmarks to make sure not, we're not off track. Uh, but maybe our, our clock watching and trying to quantify everything has a, has a stress element to it that isn't good. And I'm trying to calibrate this better, to use that term. I'm trying to figure this out a little more and like not look at the clock when I'm lifting because I know what I have to do when I lift. And as long as I'm not lollygagging and taking two hours to do it, which kind of lessens the uh, the benefits of it to make it less rigorous because I'm just resting too much. Then uh, maybe I can look away from the clock more and just enjoy the process. Or when I go out for a run, not be so intent to improve every time I run. Just try to make sure I hit a certain metric every time I go out. Like I'm not going to, when I run these three miles, I'm going to like do it in less than 40 minutes. You know, it doesn't matter what I do under 40 minutes. I just have to do it in under 40 minutes. So that's you know, like 13 minutes and something per mile, right? Okay, so that's how I want to kind of deal with it. But the uh, time and the world, uh, Soren says, he must begin his long battle with an infatigable enemy time. And time is always ticking. Uh, so Soren's right to use the word infatigable. That's how it's translated. And with a multifarious enemy of the world. So then the young person went out into the world, my listener. Uh, so again, Soren wants us to read his books aloud. Whether this discourse seems just like an old story that wants to anticipate what you are about, just about to do. Um, or whether 
It comes afterward like an old story about what you left behind long ago. This is how it is. This is how the young person goes into the world. But the next part, yes, it is very different. And a single individual, well, if the, the, the discourse uh, were uh, to address all individuals, then each one might shake his head and say, no, it did not happen that way with me. My experience was so very different from what you are talking about. Perhaps so. Uh, the, dis the, dis uh, dis <laughs> the discourse certainly desires no praise, but would not this emphasis on the different, if it becomes a staring at heterogeneity, have a certain similarity to the wish and impatience which once was the ingratiating friend becomes the ingenious confidant. So impatience is trying to get us to uh, not value patience, right? Uh, so uh, ingenious confidant. Try to break with it sometime. Uh, that is uh, stop stop the uh, stop the uh, <laughs> stop the wheel like a, like you know a mouse on a wheel or a gerbil. Try to break with it sometime, and then you will see how this thought becomes a violent becomes violent and vehemently complains about patience as if it wants to make life sheer boredom. Ooh. And if you know anything about the aesthetic stage of uh, Soren's writing, the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious, uh, boredom is the worst sin uh, in the aesthetic stage, that to be bored, because uh, it's all about novelty. It's all about not being bored. It's all about crop rotation. Wants to make everyone a poor repetition of the same. <laughs> oh, you want to be, yeah, you want to insult somebody, call them boring. Whew, especially if you work in education. He's so boring. That teacher is so boring. That counselor, boy, he is boring. Yet if unity does not lie at the base of diversity, similarity at the base of dissimilarity, then everything has disintegrated. And we uh, mentioned the idea of the unity and diversity of the world. And the ultimate unity is in God, and creation emanates from the Godhead, the Trinity. There's diversity, but it's diversity as related to unity. There's a commonality and there's a difference. And our, our culture right now, obviously, is going too far in the diverse directions. When you say your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, that kind of goes too far because what if the truths, the truths uh, don't overlap? What if they're so diverse they actually believe completely different things? So there is truth with a capital T, but then there's our understanding of the truth, which is perhaps a small t. We don't see the entire picture. And all of us are, all of us are affected by our experiences. So there is a place for subjectivity. Uh, there's the eternal nature of truth, but then there's our, our own um, experiences with truth and um, how it's affected us. And um, that, that it needs that balance. It needs that balance. So, uh, and if, uh, yet, if unity does not lie at the base of diversity, similarity at the base of dissimilarity, then everything has disintegrated. If then no one else dares to say a well-intentioned word against uh, the diversity that will enrich life to the point of disorder, <laughs> patience does. So patience is like a thread that ties it all together. Uh, patience is this, this, this kind of a thread 
that we uh, sew with that ties all this diversity together. And then you can have like a quilt, right? You know, a quilt is a combination of a lot of old fabric that was put together to make a blanket, <laughs> a banquet, a blanket, a blanket, not a banquet. But a banquet's also diverse. You have different dishes. You have your chicken and your roast beef and your dessert, your coffee and your appetizers and your salad. So there's diversity there. Um, but a quilt, you know, it's something that's indigenous here to central Pennsylvania with the Pennsylvania Dutch, and they made these quilts out of fabric from different different pieces of clothing that had worn out or coats or maybe other quilts and <clears throat> blankets, like I said. <clears throat> and it's diverse because you have to um, cut them into squares. And then you put some kind of padding underneath it or some unifying sheet underneath it but the, the quilt itself outwardly is, is diverse and it's colorful and it's different patterns and different shapes. But it has a unity. It's all sewed to the, uh, to the backing. <laughs> so that's a, that's a good example of unity and diversity right there, the quilt, if you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm trying to not blow my nose here, as you know. I'm trying not to cough too much and clear my throat. Sometimes it's inevitable, though. Which, uh, once, which once was the ingratiating friend becomes the ingenious confidant. Try to break with it some time and that you will, then you will see how this thought becomes violent and vehemently complains about patience as if it wants to make life sheer boredom, wants to make everyone a poor repetition of the same. Um, and yet if unity does not lie at the base of diversity, similarity at the base of dissimilarity, then everything has disintegrated if then no one else dares to say a well-intentioned word against uh, the diversity that will enrich life to the point of disorder. Soren's being a bit, a bit ironic here, enriching to the point of disorder. That's not enriching. That's uh, reducing. What's, what's the opposite of enriching? Depleting? That will enrich life uh, to the point of disorder. Patience does. It has seen the danger and the terror that if every person were capable of essentially effectuating diversity, then life would be dis, uh, disordered, his own life also. It sees very well that the danger is not that life forbids it, but that the danger would be and would exist if life permitted it. <laughs> is then patience yoked with the uh, thin-lipped sagacity? I think that's how that's pronounced. It might be sagacity, sagacity. I should look that up. That's a word that's used a lot in translating Soren. So I'm going to look that pronunciation up. So I apologize if I've been getting that wrong for months, years. With the uh, thin-lipped uh, sagacity, thinks life. I think I did look it up at one point. I just may not remember correctly what it was. That uh, thinks life uh, merely grinds down the variegated character of primitivity. Uh, that's, a, that's a mouthful. That thinks life merely grinds down the variegated character of primitivity or with the uh, defiance that thinks that only a favor few are capable of asserting diversity. Not at all. Patience speaks very doubtfully about the kind, uh, about that kind of favored status. This, this is something that all Christians are supposed to practice, and even pagans, I suppose. Our society's better when we're patient with each other. I know I bring a lot of stories up that appear to be kind of mundane or routine, but they teach me something. My cousin came to town on Saturday. He was running a bit late from New York City because he 
did not remember that it's actually three hours away from outside of New York City to my fine location here in central Pennsylvania. So he was late uh, by an hour and a half or so coming here. And we had a lot to do that day. I was brewing some beer and uh, got that done. Still waiting for it to start to ferment. It's a bit frustrating. It's so cold outside that I think my house is just not the right temperature for the uh, fermentation to begin. So I had to move the uh, fermenter close to one of my um, baseboard uh, heaters. So my cousin's running a bit late, so I have to get started without him, and that's fine, whatever, it's not a big deal. And then we want to go out and play some disc golf, so we did, it was great. It, was ra- it had been raining a lot, so it was really muddy, but we played down in a course really close to this house. And it was fun to play, because again, I hadn't played much in the last three months besides being down in Tampa. And afterwards, I wanted to take him to a craft brewery in York called Collusion, which is um, probably the best best uh, craft brewer in York out, you know, Collusion or South County are both pretty, pretty solid places, but I wanted to take them to a local craft beer place that's not right next door, but it's close enough that we could drive to after playing disc golf. And so we got to uh, Collusion out there in York City, which is kind of a beat up town, but it's good to see Collusion's doing really well. So it's kind of crowded at the joint. It's not huge, huge place, but it's not small either. Had a nice crowd there and very friendly, some common tables to chat with others and things and I had one beer and then I wanted to go back and get another and uh, there was a couple in front of me in line Uh, so you have to go to the bar to order at this place and there was a couple ahead of me that were sampling all these beers and you know it's the crowd starts to build uh, behind this couple because they're trying this and they're trying that they're not buying anything just trying stuff out and it was, it was a bit frustrating, uh, but I was trying to practice patience. <laughs> and I didn't think about this until later, but it made sense to me after I thought about it more, which is good to always think about things. It took about maybe five minutes, at least it seemed five minutes, for this couple to kind of get done what they were doing. Maybe that was the first time they'd ever tried craft beer. This is a new audience. This is a new couple that is trying to you know stick its toe in the water of craft beer. And we need new new uh, customers because craft beer is at risk of not happening anymore because it's financially risky. Uh, Craft breweries need to sell beer and they need to find new customers. They need to get people who drink mainstream beer to switch over to craft beer and it's more expensive, but it tastes better. So maybe this couple, this is the first time they've ever been to a craft brewery before and they're trying to figure out what tastes like stuff they like. You know, what can I enjoy here? Because if you're not used to craft beer, it might be really hoppy or too strong. So maybe they needed to do that process. Now, it just happened to happen. It just happened to happen. When things are really busy and there's people like me who know what we like that don't want to wait in line. you know, And, and there's only two people working the uh, cashier and working the, working the taps. And that person was doing a crowler for somebody, which is uh, uh, taking beer and putting it into a beer can and then using some contraption to uh, seal it up. So that person was occupied. There's two, two staff members working at, at, at the bar. And uh, so we were kind of stuck. And it took, again, like maybe five minutes. Maybe I'm exaggerating. I don't know. It just seemed like forever. And I, I was just trying to be patient. But I didn't think that maybe this is the first time they were there. And it, it is risky to try something new. Nobody likes to look stupid. Nobody likes to come into a situation where they don't know what's going on. And it's okay to slow down. And I didn't think about that. Maybe this couple was just, uh, they were just rookies. And again, we need this audience. 
Right now, I think about in the beer market, which is reducing anyway because this new generation doesn't like beer. It likes things like seltzers and uh, mixed drinks and stuff, fruity stuff. The beer market, if it was 100%, 81% of it's the mainstream stuff. It's light beer, L-I-T-E. It's Bud Light, at least it used to be, until they got into that fiasco with the uh, transgender person, which offended their uh, customers. Very red-collar, uh, red-state, blue-collar, excuse me, audience. So uh, Bud Light's in trouble right now. Uh, but it's beers like that, you know, Michelob Ultra, light L-I-T-E, beer, Bud Light, uh, Miller, stuff like that. That's 81% of the beer audience. And then 19% is craft beer. So they're trying to increase that um, 19% at the at the expense of the 81%, if that makes sense. And so we have to allow these people to feel welcome when they come. And there's all kinds of applications to church. Okay, let's just, just switch this over spiritually because I'm telling you a story about craft beer, which you might wonder what the heck I'm doing here. But I'm trying to make a point, of course. Somebody comes into church that has no background in the faith or very nominal. And that be, has become increasingly more the case as time has gone on. This younger generation, if they go to church at all, it might be for a wedding, it might be for a funeral. But they have no understanding of the Bible. They have zero experience in the church. They know what a church is, but they don't know what it means. They don't know what it functions, what its function is entirely. They, they haven't read the Bible, of course use that word again or to use that phrase again just they have a lot of unfamiliarity with the church and let's say they just walk into a church one day and they're sitting in a small group or sunday school before the sermon starts and the service starts and you know all these languages being used and, and terminology and um everybody else seems like they kind of get the taste and this this person and all these people are trying to sip it see if it see if it's something that helps their souls but because it's inaccessible and because it appears to be bitter you know calling people a sinner is not a great thing to hear it doesn't feel good but it's true uh but it's an acquired taste when you start to uh love the doctrines of grace you realize that part of that part of that formula is to realize that we're sinful and we're lost without it and uh, the bitterness makes sense because of the resolution, you develop a taste for it. I get too worried when people seem too perfectionistic and try too hard to be holy in a self-man-made way, which is a lot of rule-keeping and a lot of this, that, and the other thing. We should be free in Christ, and if we're free in Christ, we're going to do the right thing. And it's uh, used the example of going through the red light. If we love our neighbor, if we truly love our neighbor, we're not going to blow through red lights. We're going to be very aware of red lights in, in life. We're not going to cross those boundaries. We're going to be respectful of people's rights, respectful of their personhood. We're not going to impose our will or recklessness on other people. So blowing through a red light like the SUV did down in Tampa, that's a lack of loving one's neighbor, either by an act of decision or by neglect. Either one, it's the same, same result, is that your car is hurtling through a red light at a very high rate of speed and would have knocked me off my bike, e-bike, and would have killed me. And so that's a lack of love. But we have to do a good job with non-Christians and be patient with them. If they come into the church, they come into the fellowship, and they have questions, and they're confused, and they still have things in their life that is, it could be sleeping together. You know, it could come with his girlfriend. A man and a woman could walk in, and you know, 
They're shacked up. You know, you don't use that old term. Well, maybe you got to just persist for a while. They're not going to see that as being wrong. Welcome them, and then in time, God will convict them, and they may need some convicting, but maybe the best time to do that is not immediately. Maybe it is. I don't know. File the spirit on that. Patience wants to preserve only the soul. It has the courage to give up everything else. And when the soul does not believingly aspire to the eternal, does not hopefully hurry towards the future, is not lovely understanding with God and human beings, then the soul is lost. So Soren says this lack of love uh, towards God and with human beings is really the loss of a soul. And patience is part of that equation, and impatience. Uh, you want, we want things, it's like Esau in the Old Testament, you know, willing to sell its birthright for a pot of stew, you know, just because he was hungry. But if on the contrary it announces itself in this powerful presence, then the single individual, which is a, a catch term that Soren uses a lot, then the single individual has indeed saved his soul, however diverse the meanings of words may have for different people. So that's the gist of it. So the young person went out into life, yet the path, and we're turning the page here, whoo, stretches before him as long, and the world will probably uh, be difficult for him at times, if he does not enlist the help of patience now, then all his strife and struggling will be of little benefit to him. There is a type of sorrow and a type of struggle that does not bring repentance. It just brings uh, lostness. It brings depression. It brings alienation from God. And uh, we, you know, if we don't give our task to him, and we have to own things independently of God if that's possible, which it is, I guess. Uh, hell is independence from God. C.S. Lewis gets into that. The people that are in hell have chosen to be alienated from God. And when you're alienated in eternity from all that is good, what remains is not good. <laughs> That's just true by mere logic. If he does not uh, enlist the help of patience now, then all his strife and struggling will be of little, bit of little benefit to him. Ultimately, he will be fighting a for in a foreign service for something else and will have lost what he should have preserved. Not only did he, who looked improperly into the mirror, mirror, lose his soul, so this is from James, that a person can look at the mirror and forget what they look like. Uh, uh, not only he, who looked improperly into the mirror, lose his soul. And we can look into a mirror in a very selfish, narcissistic way, because that comes from the myth of Narcissus, who sees his reflection in the pool of water and wants to uh, just kind of falls in love with himself. So the mirror can lie to us too. And we see a lot of that on social media that people just want to look right for the, for the camera and for the, for the video. When we uh, look at the mirror, it's the mirror of God's law. It looks at the law. It looks at the law and sees how we fall short of it. And then grace uh, completes the picture. Not only did he who looked improperly at the mirror lose his soul, but also the one who immediately went away and forgot what he looked like not only did he who remained standing all day in the marketplace, so this is another scriptural reference to one of Jesus' stories, uh, <clears throat> and not only did he who remained standing all day in the marketplace lose his soul, but also the one who, although called in the first hours, soon left the work and once again stood in the marketplace. Jesus talks about that in terms of the workers and uh, not only he who did never who never began the race loses soul but also the one who although he began nevertheless fell short 
of the goal. So uh, that's these are just chock full of scriptural references. And if you don't know the Bible, you just cruise right through it. You would see the end notes, perhaps, but you wouldn't know where they came from. And not only did he who never came to the light lose his soul, but also the one who, although enlightened after having once tasted the heavenly gift, nevertheless fell away. And I believe that's from Hebrews, so that's that's uh, got an end note there. Yeah, it's possible for people to enjoy the fellowship and the grace of God and then to walk away from it. Yeah, it's a theological dispute in terms of what that means, but it can happen. When one speaks about it in this way, it is easy to see the danger, the terror, because one sees it as decisive and because one consults only with patience. In life, diversity has a scattering effect. And uh, just like we're naturally ADD and ADHD in the world, it's just um, the world tries to catch us with its glittering allure. And when one person perseveres in something longer than another, he holds it up as evidence and he does not understand the one who failed and is of no help to him. Thinks he has succeeded because he perversed, uh, per persevered a little longer. Persevered a little longer. Uh, something that he cannot even know definitely. In various uh, ways, they contend with each other over who is going to sit at the head or the foot Okay, again, that's a scriptural reference. A futile battle since they will all be shut out. Ooh. So they end up sitting together in the council of the mockers and in the assembly of the discontented who are unable to dig and are too proud to beg. So that's another scriptural reference. It's interesting with this uh, event that Jeremiah Miller and I are participating in this coming Sunday at 4 p.m. at West Art through the Row House Forum. Look it up. Uh, it's, uh, it's an afternoon with Kierkegaard. Uh, it's interesting as we've worked on it, Jeremiah is extremely talented. I'm the straight man in all this. I'm just asking the questions off the clipboard. But one thing I'm going to do in my intro is mention how Francis Schaeffer, a very influential writer and thinker and theologian who uh, was in the previous generation, but whose impact in this book still have a large effect on the evangelical culture. How he was mixed about his feelings about Kierkegaard, uh, that he thought uh, perhaps that Kierkegaard had some, and I'm going to mention this in my intro as we get started with the interview with Soren, and how I was dissuaded from reading Kierkegaard because of Francis Schaeffer. He was that influential with my decision that uh, it took me 30 some years to figure out that maybe Francis Schaeffer didn't know what he was talking about. But Francis Schaeffer's uh, critique of Kierkegaard was that he had perhaps some um, helpful devotional writing, like it was helpful. But um, Schaeffer was also adamant that Kierkegaard was irrational, that he was irrational, that he did not believe that scripture was true truth, that somehow Soren required this blind obedience to stuff that had no rooting in reality, no rooting in history, no rooting in, in the truth. That somehow faith is just totally irrational and ridiculous. And that to become a Christian meant that you had to throw your mind out the, out the window and just believe like a simpleton. And that was Schaefer's take on Kierkegaard, that Kierkegaard is requiring people to lose their minds and not to take scriptures as it is written and say it's true. And that's a mischaracterization. I didn't say, I'm not going to say that Schaefer lied. I don't think that was his intent. But I think by trying to be an intellectual person and to uh, 
help Christians relate to the secular world, um, sometimes Schaefer did not spend the time he needed to in order to form an accurate representation of Kierkegaard in this case, uh, that he made a simplistic um, analysis of Kierkegaard based on a cursory reading of his writings and formed an opinion, perhaps, perhaps by reading people's opinions about Kierkegaard, and uh, that decision has had a monumental effect on Kierkegaard not being valued as a Christian. And if you read this upbuilding discourse, it's scripture, it's scripture, it's scripture, it's scripture, it's scripture, it's scripture. Now, Soren assumes that his readers have some familiarity with the Bible. And if you don't know the Bible, the first thing you need to do if you're a Christian is to start at the beginning and work to the end. I've read the Bible completely through twice and taken extensive notes on it. And probably should do it a third time, to be honest. But I have done it twice, at least, from beginning to end. And there's some very rough times. Uh, I think it takes a little bit more than a, a year if you read a chapter a day. I don't recall exactly, but it's like a year to a year and a half. Maybe a little bit less. I don't remember. I've done it twice, like I said. But when I'm reading this, I know all the scriptures. I may not know specifically where they come from, and I may not know the verse and the chapter and all that kind of stuff, but I know that this is a biblical story because I'm familiar enough with the scriptures. So for Schaefer to say that um, Soren didn't believe in the veracity of scripture, did not believe in true truth, that this is a revelation of God, is not true. It's not an accurate take on Kierkegaard because there's no way he would mention these stories if he said they were meaningless or that you had to believe them regardless of the moral of the story. These stories have purposes and all that kind of stuff. So, sitting together in the council of the mockers and in the assembly of the dis discontented who are unable to dig and are too proud to beg. So that's out of Psalm like 2, the council of the wicked and the mockers. Uh, sitting together, uh, just to kind of just go back through this a minute. Sitting together in the council of the mockers and the assembly of the discontented. So that's from like Psalm 2, I think. It might be Psalm 1. Uh, but you go back and read that. And then we'll I'd teach you what Soren is getting at here. Impatience makes fools of us all. And I've probably mentioned this story before, but I, I watched the um, film. Maybe it was from the 30s, 40s, or 50s. I don't recall exactly. It's a black and white film. It's called the Dan the Devil and Daniel Webster. Uh, so this this guy sells his soul. I don't remember the name of the character, but sells his soul to the devil in this story. And it's set in like New England or somewhere in America, in rural America. And he wants to become all that in the world's eyes. So he sells his soul to Scratch, who's really the devil. And uh, he gets everything he wants, whatever it was, wealth, fame, acclaim, respect, whatever. But the devil gets him in a fury and gets him just so occupied with all these cares and all these concerns that he gets in this dance and he starts to go faster and faster and faster and faster. And music is playing faster and faster. And this is what the devil wants to do when we engage with the world. He wants us to lose our patience. He wants us to get disoriented. He wants to just seduce us. And then he wants to knock us out. And like one of the scenes in this dancing um, setup is that <laughs> the dude turns into a moth, you know, poof, and that's who he becomes. And then the story is that Daniel Webster tries to get the man out of his agreement agreement with the devil of selling his soul, and that's what 
and there's a courtroom and, and people are sitting on the on the jury and this and that. It's a good film. It's not a great film, but it has a good moral to it that we make we make deals with the world, which is uh, the devil's agent. And when the world is used in that sense, it means the devil, <coughs> the world, <coughs> the world, and all its allurements. And uh, Daniel Webster gets them off, gets him off in the end because he didn't know what he was doing or something to that effect. So we have to be patient. We have to take time. We have to let God put his roots in us. This is the parable of the soils. You know, one of the, one of the problems with the seeds uh, is quickness, that they want to they they wanna go up before they go down. They want to grow up before they put roots down. That's one of the four soils. And uh, we have to be grounded in God. And then there's the parable of the rocky soil. Uh, there's not there's not a good foundation, you know. Even though the person is willing to wait, they they put themselves in a, a bad place, and so they're not going to grow properly. And then there's the uh, <clears throat> the hard path where the birds come and steal the seeds. These are all spiritual metaphors for um, being careful about how we spend our time and our energies and our resources. So we have to plan ourselves in God and let Him produce. And it doesn't mean again that we're going to get everything our way. God has other purposes. We don't see the big picture sometimes. The assembly of the discontented. Uh, we want to avoid that. We want to avoid that, of course. And so we're going to end today on page 194. So we are making progress. Uh, I think I could bum rush through this more, to use that term. That's a term from the street from maybe the 1980s. But bum rush, we could bum rush the stage and just plow right through this book and miss it. You know, just feel so, so, uh, so, um, have so much ambition that we're going to read Kierkegaard that we just skim like a rock on top of it and we don't, we don't drink deeply of it. Skip like a rock on top of the lake. So I think it's important to take Soren slow. And, uh, I think Schaefer, to get back to him for a minute before I conclude. I think he was trying to be a popularizer. He was trying to introduce thinkers and writers and artists and musicians and philosophers and all that stuff to a crowd that had spent the last 40 years avoiding engaging culture. And so Schaefer felt very much convicted by God to make sure that evangelicals and fundamentalists did not separate themselves from the world in a ministry situation we're supposed to separate ourselves in terms of our soul values we're to be kind of odd people in that way we're not following the sequence of the world or the drumbeat of the world but we're still supposed to be out in the world we're not supposed to be hiding in the church you know and, and acting like we're uh, under attack even though we are we're to be out there in the battle and we're supposed to be interacting with people and explaining to people things they don't maybe understand because no one's taking the time to explain to them spiritual concepts. Uh, so Schaefer took that seriously, and he wanted the evangelical church to not be um, uneducated about profound thinkers and profound uh, philosophies that were affecting people's eternal destinies. So Schaefer is to be commended for that one thing, whether he always did it right and he spent the time necessary uh, to understand really what he was writing about and talking about, that can be perhaps questioned. And uh, in Soren's case, and this certainly was. And I spent 35 years probably avoiding Soren Kierkegaard. I bought this 18 Up Building Discourses probably around 2001, if not earlier. 
And I didn't read it. The fact that I bought the book was one thing. I bought it down at a bookstore that's no longer. But the fact that I bought it was the first step. And the fact that I didn't read it very soon after buying it, I didn't probably read this until 2010. So I read Schaefer's Concerns About Kierkegaard when I was in college. So that would have been 1984-ish because I got uh, a collection of his works that I still have. And uh, so that was 1984. It was at least 16 years before I even bought a book of Kierkegaard, 16, 15, 17 years, something like that. And then I didn't read it until another 10 years after that, so 26 years maybe, if I'm doing the math right in my head. So, if you're going to make a criticism of someone or something, take the time to understand it. Take the time to listen. Take the time to be patient and engage. And then when it comes time to speak then you have prepared yourself properly. That's the moral of the story. And I'll mention that on Sunday. And it sounds like we're going to have a decent turnout. Uh, it's going to be fun. Jeremiah is a talent. We went through the script yesterday, which he, which, he, which he wrote. I told him, Jeremiah, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You do the script. You, you do it the way you think is best because you're the actor. I will read the questions that you develop. <laughs> I felt very adamant that this needed to be in Jeremiah's voice because he is the star of the show. I am just the supporting actor. I'm going to pretend like I'm an interviewer like Mike Wallace or somebody else that's on the television or whatever in the video. And my job is just to ask the questions and then let him fly like a bird and fly like a kite and then maybe draw it back in if... Uh, if he needs some clarification or if he's off track with his lines. So it's going to be a good event. Four o'clock on Sunday at West Art here in Lancaster. If you're within an hour or two, I would encourage you to get a ticket. It's going to be fun. There's going to be coffee. There's going to be Danish. Uh, there's going to be a journal, hopefully, available and printed by that point, which has got a lot of Kierkegaard in it. And I'm really, really happy that my buddy Tom Becker has decided to allow us to do this. He invited us, actually. We didn't tell him. He invited us because he knows of our love for Soren Kierkegaard. So take and read. Take and read Soren and imbibe deeply upon his, uh, his writings and his thinkings, and you will find rest for your soul, and you will find patience. Let me uh, conclude with the ringing of the chimes. Last week I didn't do this, so forgive me for my failure. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. World without end. Amen.